Verse 14, I will become his father and he will be my son. And when he sins, I will correct him with a rod of men and with wounds inflicted by human beings. Now that father-son language is very common kingship language. Even throughout the Psalms, David says, he is my father. And, and that language, that's, that's more of a teacher-student kind of language. Because fathers were supposed to be the first and primary teachers in their children's lives. And so that word father was used synonymously as teacher. But it's also being used in a relational way. Notice that even as he keeps going on, after he says, your son will build me a house, he goes into household language. Father, son, disciplining, correcting. Because all good fathers discipline and correct their children. But notice he says, when he sins, I will correct him. Who is that son he's talking about? Solomon. It cannot be Jesus. Jesus didn't sin. He didn't have to be corrected. But my loyal love, my chesed, will not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, who I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will stand before me permanently or forever. Your dynasty will be forever. And Nathan told David all these words that were revealed to him. And so God says, but my chesed, covenant loyalty, will be with you forever. I will not remove my love from you like I removed it from Saul. This is a lot of people misunderstand by the word love. Love is not always used in an emotional way in the Bible. Like when it says that Jacob I hated, or Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and people are like, wow, God hated Esau? No, 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 no. That's covenantal language. As in a more modern way of saying is, I chose Jacob, but I rejected Esau. There are two words in the Hebrew for love. Ahava, and ahava is an emotional warm the cockles of your heart kind of a love that moves you to action. And then there's chesed, which is a covenantal love. It's a love that I demonstrate to people and I'm faithful to them even if I don't feel anything emotional. It's the word that we have for charity, where I may not feel anything emotional for you because I don't know who you are, but I'm moved by the faithfulness of God to be faithful to you and help you out and that kind of stuff. Or it's the love that you have in marriage with your friends or your kids sometimes when right now you are not warming the cockles of my heart. There's really not a whole lot of emotions right now for you in a positive sense. But I made a vow to you and I will stay committed because this is bigger than just what I feel right now. And that's hesed. And so in that sense, God says, I will not remove my covenant loyalty from you like I removed my covenant loyalty from Saul. It's commitment, faithfulness not emotional love. God does have emotions, but that's what he does not remove. I mean, even Israel in the depths of their sin, he's like, oh, how I long to bring you into my arms like a mother hen gathers her chicks. There's emotions there. He does not remove them. But he says this, I will establish your kingdom forever. Your line will last forever. All this is household language, line, dynasty, dynasty, Nowhere does he ever mention the word house in a building sense. What he's promising is this. Unlike Saul, the Davidic covenant brings two blessings. It brings a permanent line for David. Nowhere would David's line ever be wiped out completely, like the house of Eli. House of Eli, he sins so bad that the entire family is going to get wiped out. Later in the book of Kings, we're going to learn about Jeroboam's house being wiped out, Baasha's house being wiped out, Jehu's house being wiped out because of their sins. But God will never do that to David. Their line will continue to go on forever. And then 
The second promise he's making them is that the, your line will always be kings. They will be kings. And they will go on being kings forever. And forever and ever and ever they'll be kings. In fact, there is a descendant of David right now alive today in Israel who is the current king over Israel. And I'm really, actually really good friends with them. We talk like on a daily basis. His name is Jesus. Right now, this does not say Jesus. There's nothing here about Jesus. There's no way that David's going to go from that to Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. Right now, all David is thinking, how can I still build a house? (laughs) It is later. The Messianic prophecies are not really there yet. There's a brief one in Genesis 49 where Jacob goes to his son Judah and says, the scepter will not depart from your house until it comes to the one whom it belongs to. That hints of Messiah, but remember, that's not a fully developed theology on the Messiah. There's one later where Balaam, in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, says, Behold, I see a star rising up out of Jacob, and he will be the ruler and his scepter, and he will destroy the nations, lift up. But that could be any king. But this idea of Messiah like we think hasn't been developed yet. But it's somewhere around this time period as David is sitting in Jerusalem and he's resting and he's looking at the fact that all kingship and all spiritual power is all in one place. And God has really blessed him. And maybe he begins to think about the Davidic covenant. Like what does forever mean now? There's not a lot of whole forevers in the ancient world. (laughs) that he begins to write psalms like Psalm 110. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hands and I will right hand and I will make your enemies a footstool and I will make you a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Wait a minute. Yahweh said he's going to make this guy king and high priest? That's forbidden by the law. Yet it's in the Bible as divine revelation. And then Psalm 2 when he starts developing this. And that is going to be the first seeds that if we've screwed it up so miserably, then there's got to be something more than just my son. The kings are going to fail miserably. If God is talking about this king who will rise up out of Jacob, we haven't seen anything like that. If God's going to raise up a prophet, well, all the prophets failed miserably. And the people begin to realize a human is not quite enough. There's got to be something more to it. That this human, now they're not thinking God either yet, but they are thinking that this human's got to be blessed by God way more than an Elijah ever was or a Moses ever was. Because humans, even Moses jacked it up. And that's when they begin to develop this theology of the Messianic. And so what's going to happen is the Proverbs Sorry, the, the, the prophets are going to come along, the books. Not the prophets in Samuel and Kings, but the prophets writing the books. They're going to come along, and they're going to take the theology of Kings, which is you're in exile because you screwed up, and you will always screw up all the time because that's what you are. King, prophet, priest. And they look at that theology, and they look at all these promises of God, And it's the prophets who then go to the Psalms of David and start piecing it together and start saying, Messiah. Yes, as you put it all together, 
this can start pointing towards the Messiah. But in itself, this is not Messiah. It's not until you start putting all the pieces of the puzzle together and you're like, oh, this piece looked like a sun. But when I put it together in the big puzzle, it is the sun. And we'll talk about prophecy when we get to the books of the prophets. But prophecy is more complicated and way cooler than what we often think of just prediction fulfillment. And a lot of times it's just the ability to connect all the pieces. Very rarely does God ever say, this is going to happen in 2000 and whatever. Most of the time he just paints this picture and it's the one who has the ears and the eyes to see and hear who can put it together that gets the prophecy. And that's what Jesus is going to fulfill, but that's the prophets. So this is the Davidic covenant. So what is the sign of the Davidic covenant? Every, sign, every covenant has a sign. It's sons. Listen, in the ancient world where half of your sons die before they're even born, another group of them die just from flu and diseases at under the age of six years old. The other group of them die in battle or some raiding all the time. And then that's just lucky if you're obedient to God that you don't get wiped out in some kind of judgment from God. Sons are very rare to see line after line after line after line. That's one of the points that the book of the Bible is making. It's like the only way that Israel ever could have been like this is the blessings of God, especially how jacked up they are. And so every time that you have a son and they have sons and they have sons and sons, it's the dust of the earth and the stars of the sky to Abraham. When he starts seeing his family multiply and spread out and other families are being wiped out around him or dying or being devastated, that's going to be a constant reminder of God's faithfulness. And this covenant is completely an unconditional covenant. So that's the Davidic covenant. King David went in and sat before Yahweh and said, Who am I, O Yahweh God, and, my, and what is my family, that you should have brought me to this point? And you didn't stop there, O Yahweh God. You have also spoken about the future of your servant's family. Is this your usual way of dealing with me, men? O Yahweh God, what more can David say to you? You have given your servant special recognition. O Yahweh God, for the sake of your promise and according to your purpose, you have done this great thing in order to reveal it to your servant. Therefore, you are great, O Yahweh God, for there is none like you. There is no God beside you. What we have heard is true. Who is like your people, Israel, a unique nation on earth? Their God went to claim a nation for himself and to make a name for himself. And you did great and awesome for the acts of your land before your people whom you delivered for yourself from the Egyptian empire and its God. And you made Israel your very own people for all time. You, O Yahweh, became their God. So now I, O Yahweh, so now, O Yahweh, God, make this promise with you. Make this promise you have made about your servant and his family a permanent reality. Do as you promise, so you may gain lasting fame. As my people say, and Yahweh of hosts is God over Israel, and the dynasty of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, have told your servant, I will build you a dynastic house. That is why your servant has had the courage to pray this prayer to you. No, sovereign, sovereign Yahweh, you are true God. May your words prove to be true. You have made this good promise to your servant. Now be willing to bless your servant's dynasty so that it may stand permanently before you. O sovereign Yahweh, have spoken by your blessing. May your servant's dynasty be blessed unto the future. That's an incredible response. 
That's David's response to this Davidic covenant. And it's two parts. The second part, I'm going to deal with that one first, is it knows how often David uses the word family, line, dynasty. Did he at first at least get with the point that God was trying to make? Yeah. Nowhere in this does he say, like, oh, I get that you want my son to build a house. Or I'm going to, oh, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm reading between lines, God, you really want a house, even though you say didn't. I'm picking up what you're laying down. All of it is dynasty, family, lines, kingdoms. He gets it. At least in the beginning, he got what God was trying to say. And he's praising God for that. But the first part knows what he's also focusing on. What kind of God does this? There's no other God like you. There is no other people group that have been blessed like this. I guarantee you, as David is thinking about his past life, like, I am screwed up. I mean, we know he feels guilty because every single time he's, the fingers point at him, he immediately um, com- um, repents. He feels convicted. And he's probably looking back on his life and saying, I-, I do not deserve any God to bless me like this. Which probably makes him reflect on his history as a nation because he talks about Egypt. Like, there's no way that we as a nation even deserve anything like this. I mean, my goodness, the book of Judges alone. And every other God is a wrathful, vengeful God that just destroys people, even just doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. No rhyme or reason. There is literally no other God who blesses people unless they want something in return. There's no other God that just makes us great for the sake of Him getting glory. There's no other God that puts up with a people like this and that you would make an unconditional everlasting covenant with a man like me. And that's huge. Because you have to realize that this response is the thing that really separates Yahweh from every other being in the universe. I told you that early in the way, like almost every book of the Bible we've been through, but it's worth repeating because we need reminded of it. There is no other God, being, alien, human, robot, (laughs) that is completely, absolutely all-powerful and sovereign over all things, yet at the same time intimately, covenantally loving involved in your life. Relational. There's no being anywhere that is both, that can literally handle everything in your entire life and make promises actually happen regardless of what the future holds. At the same time actually cares enough with you to go through the trench and the muck of your sin and screwed upness and depravity and stick with you. There's no other being in the entire universe that will pursue you like he pursues you. There's no other being that says, I will literally go through hell for you. So all you have to do is just put your faith in me. And this is what David is getting. I mean, he knows the gods better than us. And there's not one God like that. And this is a response. These covenants are amazing. Remember, the word chesed, that definition, doesn't exist in any other writing in the ancient world. And it doesn't really start showing up in anybody else's vocabulary in Europe and America until after Christianity has so thoroughly influenced it. And when other religions use that word of covenant and unconditional love, it's only because they've been affected by Christianity for so long. But that is not true and basic to their religious beliefs. 
It's amazing how many other religions morphed after Christianity. The Hindu gods all of a sudden became compassionate after Christianity spread through the world. Allah somehow became a little bit more compassionate after Christianity. I mean, and people are like, oh, you copied your god from these gods. No, no, no. It was the other way around. You go back pre-Christianity, these gods were jacked up. They're still kind of jacked up. And David gets that. And that's David's response. That's David's response. The question is, with David only having really the Torah and a few stories from Joshua and Judges, and now we are post-Christ and post-Holy Spirit and post-66 books of the Bible, do we get this in our lives? Are we able to respond in this kind of way? And I don't mean you have to write this eloquently, like not all of us are poets, but something. Does, does this penetrate us? Now, once again, don't lift David on a pedestal because <laughs> he doesn't stay there very long. That's the danger. Like, There's a certain sense it's like, yes, this should be humbling because this guy gets it and do you get it too and do you appreciate even post-Christ. But at the same time, we un- inadvertently sometimes then put him on a pedestal and be like, oh, he's so amazing. Look at all the Psalms he write, wrote. If only I could think and feel like that all the time. He didn't even feel and think that way all the time. And that's what we're seeing. The Psalms need to be put in the context of the book of Samuel, too. And then you don't feel like such a horrible, evil person compared to David all the time. 